1: I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a little bit of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. On today's broadcast, we will share a reflection on the cure for selfishness. And now we all, I think, have to admit that we are selfish from time to time, and uh, we do need to be cured of this. So uh, Bishop Sheen will show us how today. And we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the Holy Hour. And, of course, Bishop Sheen gave many reflections on the need for a Holy Hour. So we'll share one of those talks from a priestly retreat he gave a number of years ago. So please uh, sit back and relax now and enjoy this reflection entitled, A Cure for Selfishness. God love you.
2: Friends, this really and truly happened in Philadelphia. A brother and a sister were discussing the various steps and orders that one took up to the priesthood. And they had mentioned subdeaconship, deaconship, deaconship, priesthood, and then one becomes a bishop. And then the sister said to the brother, and what comes after the bishop? At this point, the mother awoke and said, Milton Burrow. to remind the mother that she already missed a half hour (laughs) my little angel was talking to a psychiatrist after one of the telecasts on juvenile delinquency and the psychiatrist was explaining the best thing in order to get a child to do something is to switch his attention my angel said switch what? (laughs) everything in the American home you know is controlled by a switch except children There is nothing that develops character as much as a pat on the back, provided it is given often enough, hard enough, and low enough. (laughs) We were to say something, I was looking to see where the lights were. Do you mind turning this this red red light around here so I can see it? That's right. Thank you very much. I get so nervous when I can't see these lights. Oh, yes, we were to say something tonight about selfishness. I'm sure that you've noticed, for example, that a child has no lag between its demands and its satisfaction. That is why a child cry so readily. Now, very often, people never get out of this state of being an infant, and just as soon as they have a craving for something, they want it immediately satisfied. Take, for example, how often a man says he wants a cigarette, and he wants it then. He cannot defer it. The only time he will put off not having a cigarette, possibly, is when the lighter doesn't work. The spirit is willing, but the flash is weak. (laughs) Wouldn't it be a wonderful idea if these people, for example, would now and then just deny themselves one cigarette, which is about a penny, and send it to me? I could give it to the lepers. One cigarette a day. I'll take pennies, anytime. And then there is, of course, also the vanity. You you heard about the girl, didn't you, who got an engagement ring, and she wasn't sure that anybody noticed it? And finally she said, My, it's hot in here. I think I'll have to take off my ring. Then there is the the boasting. Is it true? I do not know. But it is said that people from Texas boast a great deal. Well, they have a good reason to boast. But it seems as if this particular Texan was talking to someone from Boston and he was speaking about the siege of the Alamo. And he says, just think of it. He says, one man, one man alone stood off invading armies. And the man from Boston said, well, have you ever heard of Paul Revere? The Texan says, isn't he the man that ran for help? (laughs) There's no need of talking about selfishness We're all familiar with it And the fact that there is a philosophy That is a little too dominant Namely that we are here only to have pleasure And that pleasure is happiness And that we should never deny ourselves And that self-control is a philosophy that is passé as a matter of fact, there's another philosophy. And that philosophy is first the fast and then the feast. You see, that's opposed to the philosophy I've been describing first the feast and then the hangover. <laughs> the hangover is the moaning after the night before. <laughs> The day almost passed before you got that one. <laughs> In addition to this philosophy of being other possessed, there is the philosophy of self-possession. Many people are other possessed. They may be possessed by some passion, may be possessed, for example, by alcoholism or some evil habit. That means that just as soon as the stimulus is presented, they immediately succumb. Now, there was another philosophy, which is the philosophy of self-possession, in which one is captain and master of his own fate and destiny. And personality is so centered, so controlled, that one is able to stand off this invading army. And just as a man is more free when he's able to control his actions, so, too, he's more free when he's not possessed by these things that are outside of him. Now, this other philosophy of being self-possessed, which is conditioned upon self-control, was very well described to us on the occasion of the visit of Greeks to our blessed Lord. The Greeks were proud people. They had a right to be proud. After all, they had given the world one of the great civilizations. But they were a people that, while not completely devoted to this philosophy of self-expression and license, nevertheless believed that love should never reach a point where it becomes lost. Their philosophy was out of the golden mean. No great extreme. And these Greeks came to our blessed Lord, but not directly. They came, first of all, to one of the apostles, Philip. He had a Greek name. It means lover of horses. And then Philip went to Andrew, who had a Greek name, that meant manly. Wasn't it interesting that the Greeks found the only two apostles that had Greek names? Well, you know, somebody was telling me before the show that she was worried to death whenever I walked backwards as I might trip... And so they they came to Philip and Andrew and asked to see our blessed Lord. Now, what did they want from our Lord? They said they wanted to see Jesus. We do not know what they wanted. But I think we can guess. And I'm just guessing. I believe the Greeks said this. We notice that enemies are multiplied. We foresee that you are going to die. It is a pity that a great teacher like you should die. Why not come with us to Athens? Athens, the city of the sages, the city of the wise men. We have killed only one of our great teachers, and we have regretted it ever since. We gave the hemlock juice to our wise Socrates, and our hearts have been ashamed of it since that day. But if you come with us, maybe you can found a state such as thrived with Solon, with this great wisdom that we have heard, possibly you can, uh, you can found a school of peripatetics such as Aristotle and Plato had. Maybe you can revive the Greek drama, once more produce some of the dramatic wisdom that came from the mouth of an Aeschylus and the Sophocles. In any case, do not die, live, come with us and teach. That is what the Greeks might have said. Now the reason we say they might have said that is because of the answer of our Lord. He said, unless the seed falling to the ground die, it remaineth alone. But if it dies, it bringeth forth much fruit. If anyone would save his life, he must lose it. In other words, our Lord was saying to the Greeks, you do not want me to stay here. You want me to save my life, I tell you that there are two things you can do with seed. You can consume it, or you can plant it. If you consume it, it gives you momentary pleasure. If you plant it, it suffers, it's crucified, it is buried in the earth, but it multiplies unto new life. Let me tell you that I have already called myself the seed. I have come into this world not to live. I have come in it to die. Death was a stumbling block to your Socrates. It interrupted his teaching. But death is the goal of my life. It is the gold that I am seeking. I am the only one who ever lived a life backward. I have come to die like that seed. And just as you have admiration for a man who might willingly surrender his life in order to save a fellow man from drowning, so I have come here to die in order to save humanity. I am not just a man. I am a god as well as a man. I am not a teacher. That is why you invite me to Athens, to teach. I am primarily a savior, a redeemer. You have heard possibly my sermon on the mount, and you boast that you would like to have wisdom like that preached again in Athens. Do you not know that there is a close and intimate relationship between the Mount of the Beatitudes and the Mount of Calvary? Do you not know that anyone who would preach in a Freudian world, blessed are the pure of heart, will see death? Do you not know that anyone in an atomic world who preaches blessed are the meek will be put to death? Do you not know that in a world of pleasure, he who says blessed are those who mourn will no longer live? I have come to die, but no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down of myself, and let me tell you, Greeks, boast not that you would save my life, because within twelve months there will be inscribed over a gibbet on which I will be nailed. The sentence of my death in Greek. This was a new philosophy. It was the philosophy of doing something with the ego, mortify it, discipline it. Make perish the things that were evil in order that the good might come forth. Is not that the law of life? After all, there are two laws in every single person. Two laws of gravitation. Because we have a spirit, I believe that we have also within us a gravitation that pulls us upwards, not downward. And so, one law of gravitation... Pulls us up the hill. It's rather difficult. And the other law of gravitation, we're all very familiar with it, is the downhill. Oh, that's the man. I forgot. All we have to do is simply let go. And we have therefore to discipline ourselves to die to that which is base. Because not every instinct that we have is good and right. Some of our instincts go to excesses. For example, in possessing things, in carnality, in pride, and in turning freedom into license. And because they do this, they all have to be disciplined. And that is not easy. Does not all nature suggest this? Just suppose that a violin string were made conscious. And when the violinist picked up the string, the violin, he began to tighten the strings. If that string were conscious, it would say, Do not do this to me. This pains me. Can you not see that I am shrieking with pain? The violinist would say, suffer it. Just for a moment. You were created to produce a melody. And die to your relaxation for just a second, and you will produce a beautiful melody. So it is with the sculptor. If the block of marble were conscious, certainly. The block of marble would protest against the hammer and the chisel. But the sculptor knows that inside, as Michelangelo said, inside of every block of marble is an image. And to bring it out requires control and discipline. Mortification. And in vain would one bring out the image without the cutting. And in vain also would one produce from within oneself the image of that which is divine without some mortification and pain. Look at the earth during the autumn time. It's filled with rotted leaves and with decaying branches and roots the exquisite of animals, this is death. And yet, it all goes to produce what is known as the humus, the life-giving property of the soil. And out of that death, there begins to come life. New leaves, new roots, new stems, and the nourishment of animals. This is the law of life which the world seems to have forgotten. And you know what is happening in the world. I mentioned once in another connection, I think I'm speaking of love, that there was a great divorce. So too there's a divorce in our modern world. This is the Western world. And this is the communist world. The Western world today wants a Christ without a cross. Communism, a cross without Christ. Now let us explain. The Western world wants a Christ without a cross. In a sense that it does not want mortification, self-discipline. It does not want to hear of these things. That is one of the reasons why there's juvenile delinquency. Carries self-expression to such an extreme that it means license. We do not want a Christ in our Western world whose hands are scarred. We want a lily-white hand. And the result is that we have a Christ who does not preach sacrifice and discipline, a feminine Christ, a weak Christ, full of cheap moralizations. George Bernard Shaw once said, The cross bars away. certainly it bars the way to selfishness and degradation and decay. And so the Western world has thrown away the cross because it would have him only a teacher. No wonder then, in speaking of him, it talks of him only as a teacher. No wonder they equate him then with Buddha or Confucius or anyone else. If he's just a teacher. Forgetting that he came primarily to die as a savior and to teach us how to be self-possessed. How to be men. How to resist the thing that drags us down even to the beast. Just as soon as you try to get a Christ without a cross, to try to please everyone, then you have a sentimental, a romanticized Christ, which will no longer have the man who can do anything for you and defeat because he's risen as the Son of God. And because our Western world has done this, communism has come along because we've abandoned the cross And communism has picked it up. And so communism is preaching throughout the world, self-discipline, self-control, make all kinds of sacrifices for the cause of communism. So long as there is the cross with love, there is sacrifice. But just as you take Christ without the cross, and you turn Christ into something feminine and sentimental, so once when you take the cross without Christ, You have not sacrificed, you have violence, hate, tyranny, Siberia, brainwashings, fifth columns, betrayals of nations, everything that's base and wicked in communism. They have taken this cross and they've inspired men with it. As one captain of a communist army said to one of our missionaries in China, That I have not eaten yet, it's five o'clock in the afternoon, and I refuse to eat the people's rice until I have done the people's work. Can you imagine one of our government workers not eating until five o'clock in the afternoon because he had not satisfied what he believed was justice to his government? And thus what we have got, they have taken up. And so the problem of the world is, is our Western world going to restore a bit of sacrifice and discipline into the home into education into children into our own lives or are the communists going to find the Christ for their cross we are all fearing a war at the present time but the one way to prevent a war is to make a war not a war against our enemies but a war against ourselves to unsheat the sword and unsheat it not against the enemy and hate but one sheath it against ourselves and all that is base and vile. For it is well to remember that God hates peace in those who are destined for war. And so are we all.
1: Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, one 866 357 Four three, three six. Again, one eight six six, three five seven, four three three six. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Your life is worth living. Hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you again for joining me today to listen to the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I want to thank everyone who has been encouraging me with um, uh, the compliments on the book that I put together with Sophia Institute Press entitled The Cries of Jesus from the Cross. It is an anthology, a collection of Sheen's writings on The Seven Last Words where there's actually seven books in one. And uh, a great catechesis, uh, a little retreat book for you to have now uh, when you want to meditate on our Lord's Passion and the beautiful words he said from the cross. And uh, I tell you, it is uh, doing very well uh, out in the Catholic world and even in the secular world. It's amazing uh, with that thing called Amazon.com how uh, Protestants, Jews, and Catholics have been purchasing the book, because it is a topic near and dear to so many. Uh, we're all trying to figure out the meaning of life, and uh, Bishop Sheen answers those questions. So, uh, again, thank you to everyone. Again, it's called The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, published by Sophia Institute Press. So uh, let us uh, now uh, join Bishop Sheen. Again, he's talking about the holy hour and why spend an hour with the Lord. And so, without further ado, may I present to you the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
2: Why is it that we priests never carry away from retreat the same benefits that dentists bring from their conventions? and that medical doctors carry away from theirs. If the dentists, for example, hear of the value of a new kind of water drill, they immediately install it. If the doctors learn there is such a thing as electro-anesthesiology, and the use of electricity instead of ether for producing unconsciousness, they immediately use it. You have made retreats for three years, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, or more. Can any of you remember a single resolution that you took during a retreat which you have kept? do we just simply attend a retreat, like we might attend a series of lectures on health. Health is good, we are agreed about that, but we do nothing specific. It becomes very important, therefore, to get down to basics and to carry away something that we will do the rest of our lives as a result of this retreat. reason is you see when we're young we have physical and emotional energy but we're very much opposed to the expenditure of spiritual energy in middle age we drift the one Leon Blois said one step beyond mediocrity and we are saved the old become fixed and settled and refuse to change. And in this day when there is so much affirmation on self, we've almost turned around the words of John the Baptist I must increase. decrease. I must draw attention to myself, and he must suffer the eclipse and decline. T.S. Eliot said that when everyone is running toward a precipice, he who walks in the opposite direction seems to have lost his mind. So when we fall into a pattern of ordinariness, we are loathsome to change. What has characterized our age is what might be called de-Eucharistization. A decline in the love of the Eucharist. when some theologians completely misunderstanding the Vatican Council felt that there was no such thing as the sacrament of the presence and even cast some doubt upon the sacrifice and the value of it and so we suffered from what the whole world is suffering from St. Paul calls it a want of feeling. Sociologists tell us that family life and relationship between people has very much degenerated in the sense that there is a want of sensitiveness and delicacy toward one another. Maybe the grossness of our carnal age made us put less stress upon those common courtesies and urbanities which make up life. Little affection is shown between husband and wife, between mother and children, father and children. I mean a show of affection Yes, there is the love in the in the providing for them, but the manifestation of love that has gone into decline, and it goes into decline in the spiritual order, so that we priests have become poor lovers. We are not. A husband would come into the house without speaking to the wife. We will come in to read Mass without speaking to the Lord, even for a second. We would tip our hat to a lady whom we met on the street. Healings as we pass the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Grant this, then, we have to do something about it, something very practical. Now, there are some things that are insufficient. One liturgy is insufficient for total spirituality. Sometimes liturgy can be used as an excuse for a want of personal piety. I read Mass. That's all I have to do. One of the priests who wrote the Dutch Catechism went to Russia, met a saintly priest who suffered considerably and asked the priest to hear his confession this Dutch priest said that after he had confessed his sins, this holy Russian priest said, Would you also like to confess that you failed to read Mass during your vacation? Did you forget your Lord? The the liturgy is where all those who have a common belief and a common love meet. But our personal devotion piety is after that. Nor will it do just simply as we American bishops. We did something on the priesthood and we started with the American situation. Now we can't start our priesthood with the situation locally, culturally. So we finally had to drop it. We found out that statistics don't last over a year, as G.K. Chesterton said some people use statistics as drunkards use lamp posts for support rather than for illumination. And furthermore there is always a thought that the present situation is going to endure, and therefore if priests are living a certain way now well that's the way they will live in the next 10-15 years, no just suppose we put into a computer in 1890 the number of horses that would be needed in 1977 or 80 to care for drayage, commercial social transportation and the like do you know what the computer would tell us? that by nineteen hundred and eighty we would all be buried in eleven feet of manure. So we cannot start with the present situation or with liturgy, nor can we start with the devotions we learned in the seminary. It was easier years ago when we were not so busy to have time for the different devotions throughout the day so we have to get back to that on which our priesthood centers and build our spiritual life around that now on what does the life of a priest center when you get home you read chapter 5 Of the Vatican Council on the Priesthood And you will read this line The whole Spiritual life of the priest Is summed up in The Eucharist Which is Christ That is why we are priests I'm therefore going to propose to you something concrete, and it is the daily holy hour. In the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, continuous hour. Though one one may part of one may make part of it before Mass and part of it afterwards, but the Mass is not included in the Holy Hour. You see, we say we do not have time. All right, that's good. Then time is the enemy. If that's the excuse that we have for not being spiritual, then let's seize it and find time. Why make it? First of all, it was the only thing that our blessed Lord asked his priest to do and that night in the garden when he poured forth his precious blood each drop like a bead falling on the olive roots making the first rosary of redemption three times he came back for companionship. would be some whom he could trust that's why he picked them and he found them asleep once twice three times and his broken heart said can you not watch one hour with me one hour Now why the hour? Here I'm not speaking of devotion. The holy hour is rooted in the scriptures. It belongs to no league. It belongs to no community. It's biblical. In the Gospel of John, the word hour always refers to evil. God has his day. The devil has his hour. And if you follow the word hour through the Gospel of John, you will always find that it refers to the evil of men and the evil of Satan. Our Lord began talking about it at the marriage feast of Cana when his mother asked for a miracle. My hour has not yet started. went out and it was night it's always night when we leave our Lord said Father the hour has come the hour the hour of expiation the hour of death and when Judas blistered his lips with a kiss This is your hour. All that you can do with it is turn out the lights of the world. So our Lord asked for an hour. Therefore we will make it. Combating evil Believe me The devil has been given A very long rope We may be entering Into a kind of A demonic age No theologian Writes about it We do not talk about it Who speaks about it? Psychiatrists and poets One of your great Irish poets hours at hand and some dark beast crouches at Bethlehem to be born the good lack all conviction the worst are full of passionate intensity one of the psychiatrists at Rockefeller Institute has three chapters on the demonic
3: So, since we're
2: priests, since we are other Christ's, his ambassadors, then we'll do what he asked. We'll make the daily holy hour. The second reason for asking it. Because it refers to evil we have to make intercession think of how many people ask us for prayers now it's not possible always for us to mention them specifically in our prayers but we certainly during a time such as the hour we can make intercession for them for our brother priests our religious for the church Intercession is reparation That's another word we never use today See, there's one word that we use That makes it easy Ministry Ministry What is it? Ministry Social ministry Liturgical ministry Believe me, we have a deeper mission than that We're just not ministering We're saving We're reconciling Moses was on the mountain. Aaron, his brother down below, gathered up the earrings from the women, threw the gold into the furnace, and then they began with their wild music and nudity and so forth. And Moses came down and asked about that golden calf which they were adoring. And the lamest excuse that was ever given in the history of the world Was given by Aaron He said, well I just threw the gold into the furnace And it came out a calf Moses smashed the golden calf ground it into dust and mixed it with water And made them drink it I wonder if they had a good case of revenge but in any case what did Moses do then he went back to the mountain and he said God blot me out from the book of life if you will but save these people that's what we're doing Saving people. So the holy hour, therefore, we make because the Lord wants it. Secondly, because we must make reparation for the church. Thirdly, because we begin to know ourselves. We do not know ourselves from our examination of conscience. How do we know that water is dirty? we know clean water how do we know a dissonant note in music because we know harmony how do we know we're in rags in unbecoming in dignity as priests for example by looking at those who are as they should be How do we know what we are? By looking at Christ. That's how we know. That's how we know we're sinners. We look at the ideal, then we know the real. Believe me, fathers, it will change your life. You have no idea how different you will be before people in the pulpit in your own heart if you do it so you will know yourself and remember it is not just enough to read mass the sacrament is distinct from the sacrifice now we had breakfast we had bacon and eggs This retreat is heard on tape later on, there will be many priests who said, oh, I wish I had that good Irish breakfast this morning. But we had bacon and eggs. That was our sacrament. That nourished us. What was the condition of the sacrament, the sacrifice? The egg had to be broken, subjected to fire the animal had to shed its blood also be subjected to fire then it became our sacrament after every sacrifice there is a sacrament the fallacy of many churches is to try to have a sacrament without a sacrifice It's impossible and when we have the sacrifice we always have Something that's left over. We use it for hospitality. We take care of visitors with what has been sacrificed. And the Lord, too, has his sacrament. Very much like marriage. The marriage act of husband and wife is a kind of a sacrifice Because the lover dies to himself and submits to the beloved. The beloved dies to herself, submits to the lover. And out of that mutual death there comes the ecstasy of love. That is the sacrifice. Now, do a husband and wife have only a love that is manifested in that sacrificial act? Are there not any courtesies of companionship, which would even surpass, in the quiet silence, the ecstasy of two-in-one flesh? Even moments of silence, as Maeterlinck said, a friend is one in whose presence you can keep silence. As a matter of fact, their happiness, one with another, depends upon the deep consciousness that each one is a sacrament to the other. So our Lord has a sacrament. He is really and truly present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. And if we know how to love... We become sensitive and responsive. And when we come in to visit him, he will talk to us. We take on his likeness, as Moses' face did shine because he was with God. So too St. Paul tells us that we grow in splendor. Because we are in a presence of God, a splendor that grew as he returned again to the mountain, and a splendor that grows in us because we return to him. We reflect, says St. Paul, as in a mirror, the splendor of the Lord and thus we are transfigured into his likeness from splendor to splendor that is what the Eucharist does do not tell me this is a good retreat I'm beyond praise, beyond blame after years in the priesthood this retreat is a dismal failure if you do not make a holy hour. The only reason that I ever came. And I'm speaking as one of his ambassadors. And when John and Andrew found our Lord, they said, where do you live? Where do you live? Our Lord said...
0: Come and see. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me once again for a little bit of reflection time with the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, I tell you, his uh, teachings are classic. They're timeless, Uh, If he was alive today, I think that homily would do still very well. Uh, Both of them, in fact, uh, because the truth is the same in season, uh, you know, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the year 2018. Uh, Again, it's still uh, truth is truth, and the truth will set you free. And so I want to thank my good friend Anthony at uh, FultonSheen.com, a website where they make available these quality recordings that you've been listening to. Uh, year in and year out here at Radio Maria. And I tell you, uh, this labor of love that he has to uh, restore these classic recordings and to make them uh, as clean and crisp as he could, uh, we appreciate that. And he's given us permission to use these on our radio broadcasts. So I'd ask you to please support him by visiting his website at www.fultonsheen.com. And there you'll find the uh, free... Uh, phone app for the iPhone or the Android, and, of course, a great selection of talks uh, over a 50-year period. And so, again, Fultonsheen.com. I want to thank, of course, the volunteers here at Radio Maria Canada who uh, tirelessly work to keep us on the air and to uh, do uh, all that is needed to keep uh, this little apostolate afloat. And so God love all the volunteers. And I want to thank you, the listeners, who have supported us financially and spiritually for many years. And we'd ask you to keep doing that so that we can continue to share not only Fulton Sheen, uh, but the many great programs here on Radio Maria Canada. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
0: You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.